Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to our New Testament overview. Today we get into arguably one of the most famous letters of Paul, just in terms of usefulness and frequency of quoting it, Uh, the letter from Paul to the Philippians, the Christians in the city of Philippi. And we can begin here in just a minute by looking at the background. We have some good background for this letter in Acts chapter 16. Yeah, and the book of Philippians is one that stands out in a lot of people's minds because it's kind of the more positive book in the New Testament. Uh, we've covered so far out of Paul's epistles, First and Second Thessalonians, Galatians, and both of the letters to the Corinthians and the book of Romans. And in pretty well all of those, Paul has some hard things to say to those brethren. But when you read in Philippians, it's hard to come by anything negative that Paul says. There's one correction that he will give to two women in the church that we'll look at in chapter 4. But overall, this is a, an encouraging letter that Paul writes to these brethren. And in large part, it has to do with how he met these brethren and what his experience with them was going back to the book of Acts. Yeah, and his own joy, even though he's in prison. Yes. <laughs> joy is one of the big themes in the book. But what's interesting is if you go back to Acts 16, we have the background of when Paul started the church in Philippi, and it started with some suffering. Mm-hmm. So in Acts 16, he's on the second journey. And he picks up uh, Timothy on the way there. Paul and Silas start out. They pick up Timothy. And uh, Paul has some other plans. It's kind of interesting to see the change of plans in the chapter. And he ends up being called to Macedonia in a vision. And goes to Philippi. And the two main converts we read about in Philippi, or the first one, is a woman named Lydia, um, who is a believer, and he meets her down by the river uh, where there was a place where women were gathering to pray and she's converted and the other convert is about as different as you could imagine yeah <laughs> uh, a jailer yeah um, a Gentile man who Paul and Silas meet because they're falsely accused beaten and yeah. put in prison so Paul was in prison whenever he met this guy like Stephen is saying and so his experience in Philippi wasn't really a great one. Um, but while he's in prison, there's this great earthquake that occurs, and the foundations of the prison's house are shaken, and the doors open, and everyone's chains fall off. And the jailer, the same one we're talking about, was actually going to kill himself because, I mean, that's the inevitable. If all the prisoners escape, that's what's going to happen to him anyways. And Paul cries out, do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer cries out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And We're not exactly sure in what way the jailer meant that. I think he likely meant, in this moment, what do I need to do to be saved from this horrible situation? But Paul told him he needs to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And that very hour of the night, uh, that jailer and his household are baptized. And so now you have, in this church at Philippi, this woman named Lydia, the seller of purple fabrics, and then... This jailer. I mean, just two completely different groups of people. And their households. We don't know who all that may have included. Correct. But Correct. Uh, yes. So it's not just two people. But, yes. Uh, and we know that Paul made other converts there in Philippi as well. Um, he, he greets the brothers at the end of chapter 16 after they get out of the prison. 
they had seen the, the brethren there, brothers and sisters, and then they they leave. Um, so it's just kind of interesting thinking about the background there. Yeah. And one of the things that I think kind of encapsulates the message of Philippians is the moment in that story when Paul and Silas have been beaten, they've been thrown in prison, and in Acts 16.25 it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And what's interesting about the letter that Paul's writing, this is several years later, and Paul is in prison again, but now he's in prison in Rome. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see some cool things in the letter that tie into that. But really, Philippians is about learning to sing in prison, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, that whatever hard circumstances we find ourselves in in this life, learning to find joy and to praise God in the midst of that. And so Paul modeled that mindset when he was actually in Philippi. He's going to model it again through the letter that he writes to the Philippians from prison on a different occasion. One of the things to note, just as we move out of the book of Acts here, is that Paul, it looks like, had to leave Philippi a little bit sooner than what he would have liked. Upon his arrest, one of the things that happened to him, being beaten, is when he's tried, he brings up that he is a Roman citizen. And that was not allowed. If you were a Roman citizen, you were not allowed to be beaten without a trial. And so whenever they hear that this has happened, they're scared because Paul can get them in a lot of trouble for this. And they beg him to leave the city. And there's a lot of reasons why I think Paul does this. In large part, I believe it's because he's he's trying to let the name of the Lord not be drugged down in, in this whole mess. And so that these new Christians don't face any backlash for what's just happened. But he's told to leave the city, and so he does. He goes into the house of Lydia, sees the brethren, encourages them, and then he departs. But that's not where the story ends with with the Philippians and with the Macedonians. One of the things that Paul is going to consistently talk about through the book is how these brethren had a participation in the gospel from the very beginning. Um, And I think that both means in them praying for him and, and doing their best to think about him on his preaching trips, but there's also a financial level that, that Paul had with this church in Macedonia or Philippi that he was dependent on them and very thankful for that support that he got. Mm-hmm. So in part, Philippians is basically a thank you letter for the support they gave him on different occasions, but especially now that he's in prison in Rome where he's writing this letter, um, which you might mention here that uh, we'll talk about these different prison letters kind of as we go through uh, Philippians uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, Philemon yep. are going to be the four letters that Paul writes from Rome, from what we understand, um, uh, while he's in prison there. And uh, there'll be some other letters that he writes, like Second Timothy, where he's in prison, but it looks like a later imprisonment. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But Philippians um, is fairly easy to outline as you just look at the overview of the letter. Um, chapter 1, he's going to have a very typical opening with his greeting and prayer. And then he's going to go through three different situations that are very negative, but he's going to see the positive in those situations. Um, he'll go on to talk about how they need to walk worthy of the gospel. And in chapter two, there's a really important poem where he will talk about the nature of Christ and his humility and how they need to model that. That's really That flows out to really the rest of the letter, I think. It's kind of the heart of the letter. Um, He'll talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus, chapter 3. He'll have a warning 
uh, against false teachers, perhaps specifically Judaizing teachers that we talked about in our episode on Galatians. And then he'll have some miscellaneous encouragement in chapter 4 to get these two women to agree and to pray more. And then a thank you note at the end for their financial support, but that Paul's content, whatever he's at. So coming back to the beginning, um, Paul opens Philippians as he very typically does his letters, um, writing to the church there. I think it's notable that in chapter 1, verse 1, he greets um, to Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Yeah, so this congregation, they had shepherds. Uh, there's three different Greek words that describe this office. Uh, overseers, uh, elders, or shepherds is kind of the idea. Um, but unfortunately, there's a lot of different English words that we have to talk about that same role. But that's exactly what they're doing. The word overseer is helpful. They're overseeing the work and the brethren that are in this congregation. Um, and so not only are there overseers there, but there are deacons. And that's a word, Stephen, that's a little bit funny, isn't it? it it's what word we called transliterated. They they just took the Greek letters and turned them into English letters. But this word literally means servant. Mm-hmm. That, that is literally all that it means. And there was an appointed idea of servanthood. We see that in 1 Timothy and Titus. But this congregation had servants at this point that were serving the church. Mm-hmm. And we'll see later that certainly all Christians are supposed to be servants, but these were servants in a special sense. Maybe like sure. A capital S, servant, yeah, if you will. That's a good way to put that. So Paul is grateful for them, but one of the things we see is that this is a mature congregation. They're doing better than, for instance, Corinth was doing. They weren't without problems, but uh, doing much better overall. And so Paul uh, thanks God for them, for their fellowship in the gospel. Again, I think there's a financial level to that uh, as well. And then prays that their love and knowledge would abound all the more. Um, I love that we have some of Paul's prayers recorded in these letters. Uh, we mentioned this in the episode on the Thessalonian letters, but uh, you see some of this as well in Philippians, is that really verses 3 through 11 are Paul giving the contents of his prayer for them, which is really cool to not only say, hey, I'm praying for you, but to say, here's what I am praying for you. And mm-hmm. we can learn from that now, I think. It's just to really tell people, hey, here, here's the contents of my prayers for you. And uh, that can be a real encouragement to people. Yeah, and so as was mentioned a little bit ago, uh, specifically in verse 5, he says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And so this has been a church that has been involved with Paul's ministry from the very start, and he'll have more to say about that in chapter 4. So in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, Paul looks at three different situations that were very negative but sees the positive in them. And verses 12 through 14, he acknowledges that he is in prison. But there's two positives that he sees in that. One is that the guards have heard that his imprisonment is for Christ, verse 13. And the other is that the brothers have become more confident in Mm -hmm. the Lord and are more bold to speak the word without fear, in verse 14. And, And this is just such a powerful way of thinking. Paul could have been so negative about being stuck in prison. He's like, well, I'm stuck here. And he couldn't do a lot of the work that he was used to doing, traveling and preaching. He's like, all right, I'm going to write letters. (laughs) And I'm going to tell them that even the guards are here. And, you know, I don't care who I'm around. I'm going to make sure they hear about Jesus. 
And that relentless joy is something that I think, again, makes Philippians such a beloved book to people, is the way Paul looks at these different situations. Yeah, because we have circumstances that we cannot control. And I think that bothers us as humans. Like, man, this is a thing that I hate that's happening, but there's not anything I can do about it. And although there are circumstances that we cannot control, we can control ourselves, and we can control how we see those circumstances. And Paul is encouraging these brethren to do the same thing, using himself as an example with that. And so may that be a lesson to us, that that despite our circumstances, we choose how to respond in those moments to rejoice uh, in the truth of God's word and to rejoice that we are in Christ. And no matter what happens, we will get to live with him one day, which is Paul's whole point there at the end of chapter 1, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, Mm -hmm. if I stay on in the flesh, great, that means more time with you, brethren. But if I die, then I go and be with the Lord. That is such a great perspective. He is focusing on the win-win of things, not the lose-lose. Yeah, that's right. This second scenario, just before we get to that one that you mentioned, is a little bit of a tough one in that verses 15 through 18 talk about uh, people who are preaching Christ, but they're doing so from selfish, wicked motives, from envy and rivalry. I mean, how discouraging is that? I mean, that's yeah. one of the things that has given people the most trouble with Christianity over the ages is hypocritical preaching yeah. of the gospel. And if you're Paul, you're probably sitting there going, man, if I, if I was out of prison, I'd go over there and I'd call them out for that. Yeah. You know, I can't believe that. What good am I doing just sitting here in a jail cell rotting away when I could be out there calling people out? But that that's not the attitude Paul has whatsoever. Uh, what he says actually in verse 18 um, is what then? Only in that every way, whether in pretense or, pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Christ is being proclaimed. That's the bottom line that Paul is choosing to focus on. He can't control what those people say, and neither can we whenever there are false teachers out there. But when the truth of the gospel is being spread, we can be thankful for that. And God has shown throughout the centuries and especially throughout the scriptures that he can work even through selfish people. Um, A great example of that is Jonah, the story of Jonah. If you've never read that, just go read it. It's easy four chapters where there is a wicked messenger that does not want to send out the message that God is still able to use to send out the message. And so that is the side of the Lord that Paul chooses to focus on here. Mm-hmm. And that gives way to the third situation, which is tied to his imprisonment, but it's that he might die. And like you've already mentioned, Chase, back in uh, verse 21, he says, listen, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a win-win scenario. Verse 22, he continues, for if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Mm -hmm. I love the way he thinks about that. He longs to be with the Lord, to be with Christ forever. But he knows that there's some really good work that remains for him to do. And so his point is the Philippians may be kind of feeling sorry for him and be like, man, this is terrible, Paul. You know, you might die. Are you okay? He's like, listen, I'm fine. Mentally, he is in a great place because he realizes that it's a win-win scenario. Every morning he wakes up is an opportunity to continue preaching the gospel, writing letters, which we're benefiting from 2,000 years later here. Um, But if he does 
wake up and it's his last day, he gets to go be with the Lord. And so that kind of, because it's not naive thinking, but it is positive thinking. This isn't just like wearing rose-colored glasses and pretending like everything's fine. No, he's acknowledging the problems. He's not minimizing the problems. It's just he's choosing to focus on the joyful things in his situation. Mm -hmm. So that's an important distinction here. This isn't just a put on a happy face and pretend like nothing's wrong. That's not what Christianity is about. Sure. But it's acknowledging the problems and then choosing to focus on the joyful things in the situation. Amen. And so Paul uses his example at the end of chapter 1 to encourage him to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that when he comes uh, and sees them, um, that he will hear of them, that they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, And so Paul, he wants them to this is actually a, kind of a similar phrase he uses in Ephesians 4. Lord willing, we're going to do Ephesians next week. Um, but man, what what a kind of great first chapter uh, to a, a beautiful book that encourages these brethren to stay steadfast. Mm-hmm. So this gives way to a, a section that, again, I think is kind of the heart of the letter. Chapter yeah, 127 uh, really kind of flows into chapter 2 all the way down through verse 18. And on either side of this poem, he has various exhortations to walk worthy. And on the other end, he'll say, you guys need to be lights in the world. Don't complain. Uh, But in the middle is the story of the cross. And it's so amazing to see how Paul puts this succinctly. Now, this may be, um, some have speculated this could have been an early Christian hymn that Paul is either quoting or that he wrote. Oh, that's cool. And um, yeah, because there's some really interesting structure to it in the Greek. I don't know all the details about it, but uh, this is one of those passages that people wonder, is was this an early hymn that the Christians mm-hmm. sang about Jesus? But because it... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, because it kind of has the poetic nature of like the dissension, right, of Jesus. Um, and so it, it starts off in, of course, the, the call for them is to not look out for their own interests, but for the interests of others, and have this attitude in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. But it starts off by pointing out that Jesus existed in the form of God, but he did not regard the equality with God a thing to be grasped. So you, you kind of see him step down. But into, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. So he, he kind of gives up this, this um, equality with God in order to, to come down and be like a man, but then he humbles himself by becoming obedient. So he, he's obedient like all other men, but obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. It's not just any death, but it's a Roman crucifixion that he goes through. And so you see the, just the, the fall and humility of Jesus all in verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And so Jesus in his humility is then exalted by God. Does that not grasp what's at the heart of Jesus' teaching? Humble yourselves before your God, and God will exalt you. That's exactly what Jesus did himself. And so Paul is emphasizing the need for these brethren to do that for one another. Humble yourself before your brethren. God is the one that exalts. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. Um, and actually, if you read this in a translation like the uh, Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, uh, they actually set this off in poetry. Um, it's very interesting. That's really cool. And so this humility of Jesus is really, it's at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, Our faith needs to be centered around the cross 
which is the example of the one who was the highest possible rank, humbling himself to the lowest possible situation. And if Jesus, our Lord, is being crucified for us, where does that put us? Uh, There's nothing that we should be unwilling to do. There's nothing that's beneath us as servants of Jesus. And so that's going to help Philippi. That's going to help any church. And that's why, again, this letter is so universal in its application. If we have that mindset, which that's how he introduces the poem in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, if you think like this, everything's going to fall into place. Uh, If you have this kind of humility. And Paul is modeling that throughout this letter. Yeah, amen. And so it really falls into place in chapter 2, 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, you know, these brethren are going to have to get along with one another, and, and it looks like there's a couple sisters that are having a problem with that, but just this continued reminder to get along with one another. But it's really cool that he points out, if you can be the type of people that don't grumble or dispute, you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation— among whom you appear as lights in the world. When you're not constantly fussing and fighting and grumbling and disputing, you stand out as a light. Because what does the rest of the world do? They grumble and dispute and they complain constantly. I mean, at the time we're recording this, Stephen, I think gas is is $4.50 a gallon right now or something like that. And that's the common complaint going around. But the Christian has the advantage to to say, you know, I'm not going to worry about that. The rest of the world is freaking out, but I'm not going to worry. God is my provider. And we will stick out like lights in that situation. And so if we can learn to, to do this, um, we will be these lights in the world that Christ intends us to be. Mm-hmm. So after these exhortations that are kind of an outflowing of this poem about Christ, uh, Paul has a, a few notes just really to the church there about two men who have served them and will serve them. One is Timothy, who's hoping to send Philippi soon. And it's interesting how he uses some of the same language of the poem in describing Timothy, where in verse uh, 20 and 21, he says about Timothy, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, Mm -hmm. which is back to chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing but from your own interests, look out for the interests of others. He's like, Timothy's like that. Here's one. And of all the people Paul knew, he's like, wow. Timothy stands out as a selfless guy. He's going to really care about you. He's going to really serve you. So hope to send him. And then he says, I, I want to give you an update on Epaphroditus. Here's another living example of selflessness. Epaphroditus was the one who apparently had delivered the financial help from Philippi and had gone to Rome to find Paul, give it to him in prison. And he had done so, but in the process, he got sick almost to the point of death for the sake of the gospel. And he says again, look at guys like this. In verse uh, 29, he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. It's so cool to see other embodiments of the spirit of Jesus, so to speak, uh, the, the, the attitude that Jesus had. Um, you can see it in Timothy and the way he cares about people. You can see it in Epaphroditus and what he's willing to sacrifice. And so these two men are just adding living examples of the way Christians ought to think and ought to live. And sometimes that's really helpful in addition to the perfect example of Christ that we have fallible people, but who do live out 
to some extent, the cross. And, and it's just really helpful to have all of those examples here in Philippians 2. Yeah, amen. So in chapter 3, we see Paul's first finally, although we're only halfway through the letter. <laughs> I've never done that in a sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're in this podcast. I'm sure That's we've right. been guilty and, of it. And uh, in conclusion, and, oh well. Yeah, yeah 20 minutes 20 left. 20 more minutes. <laughs> uh, but in chapter 3, 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And it's, it is kind of funny that he says finally because he's been saying that previously. I think he probably says it more in chapters 1 and 2 than maybe he does in 3 and 4. It might be equal. I'm not 100% sure. But to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And what he reminds them of in verse 2 is, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. It really, at the root of it, he's warning them against Judaizers and false teachers. Um, and that has been something we've talked about in almost every epistle we've went through so far, because that was such a problem in the New Testament church. And False teachers are still a problem in the Lord's church today. And so understanding some of these same principles that Paul applies in chapter 3, I think, are really important. Um, And so Paul, he will set himself up not to be a Judaizer, but to talk about what Judaizers brag about and how he could brag about all the same things in chapter 3. Paul points out that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. He was zealous. He was a persecutor of the church. But his whole conclusion about that in verse 7 is, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Paul doesn't want to be justified by the law or by the things that he did in his past life of being a Jew. All of those things leave him nowhere in his standing before God. Those things were all lost. But he wants to be known and his value seen in that he knows who Jesus is. And all those Judaizers have missed that whole point. And so Paul is emphasizing to them, don't don't get caught up on all that stuff. Your value is in knowing who Jesus Christ is. Put all of your stock in that. Mm -hmm. I think it's so valuable to see there's the actual false teaching, which if these are Judaizing teachers or Jew-making teachers, the, the, the actual teaching is, well, Gentiles have to become Jews first in order to be saved and then then they can be Christians and all of this which that's very clearly refuted in Acts 15 and Galatians other places but behind that teaching is this spirit of of pride this spirit of selfishness of, of boasting in your own accomplishments and that's really helpful to peel back and see that sometimes it can be the false teaching, it may not be that people today are going around as as frequently saying, oh, Gentiles have to become Jews. But the core of that teaching of the self-promotion and having my own righteousness, not relying on the righteousness of Christ, that is alive and well in many forms, in many false teachings. And so really, chapter 3, Paul is working to head off the false teaching at its root, not just the manifestation of it, but the heart of it, the attitude of it. And so at the end of the chapter, he's gonna, there's going to be a famous section about reaching forward. 
But notice Paul's modeling of the humility of Christ in this section. Philippians 3.12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is in himself modeling, again, what we talked about in the poem in chapter 2, a selfless attitude. He doesn't think he's there yet. He's still growing. He's still got a long way to go. But he's straining forward and is not looking back on his own past accomplishments. And he's also not dwelling on the past of his own sins. If Paul had spent all his time thinking about the past, he would have either been crippled with guilt or just coasting on past achievements. He does neither of those things. He says, I forget what lies behind. Not that he literally forgot. He's just listed what was behind him. But he says, I'm not thinking about that. I'm not focused on that. I am focused forward on Jesus and on straining toward what he has for me. And that keeps Paul productive. It keeps him working. It keeps him joyful. And man, we that is such a, again, so applicable. Just thinking about our relationship to the past. Uh, whether it's looking back on previous accomplishments or haunted by previous sins. Uh, this section of Philippians is just so helpful to learn how to focus on what's ahead and reach forward. Yeah, so in verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven, for, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's where we put all of our hope, um, and that's where we reside, is in the, the kingdom of heaven. And there's something interesting about this letter to the Philippians because Philippi was a Roman colony. Yeah. And we learned that in the book of Acts. Right, because he appealed to his Roman citizenship there, Paul did. And there's two references to this in Philippians. The first one, of course, is here in Philippians 3.20. Uh, our citizenship is in heaven. <clears throat> you Roman citizens. It's, it's not just about your Roman citizenship. Right. It's about your heavenly citizenship. But there was another one that I missed for a while that's in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That word for let your manner of life is a word that means live as a citizen, uh, which is kind of interesting. So he's basically saying, like, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, so it's a closely related Greek word to the word for citizenship, which is kind of cool. Um, and so the idea there is just you need to focus less on your physical privileges, which again, Paul's just modeled that in chapter 3 by giving up his Jewish heritage. And he's also saying to you Gentiles who are Roman citizens, hey, it's not about that either. It's not about your heritage. It's not about your physical citizenship. It is about your heavenly citizenship. Um, that, that's what you've got to focus on. So in chapter 4, um, I actually believe the ESV pairs chapter 4, verse 1 with chapter 3. Mm -hmm. Therefore, my beloved brethren, uh, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved that's that's kind of the conclusion of all that Paul's just been talking about but the one kind of not really rebuke but encouragement that's given heavy encouragement that Paul gives in this letter is to two sisters named Yodia and Syntyche and he's urging them to live in harmony in the Lord and so there's that commandment to them where he calls them out for it but also in verse 3 he calls on a true companion there to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he's calling on specific brethren there to aid these women and to help them 
to learn to live in harmony in the gospel. And so what Paul is really calling on them to be is peacemakers, uh, help, help these ladies learn to get along. So it's really cool to see Paul call these women out, but also call the church to stand up and to help them with the same command that Paul just gave them. Mm-hmm. And he follows this up with some of the most famous, just encouraging words in the New Testament. Rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4.4. 4. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, Worry less, pray more. Mm -hmm. And that is a recipe for joy and less anxiety. And then he gives another key in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Mm -hmm. Where we put our minds is going to affect so much of our life. So he says, think about these good, honorable, pure things. But then also verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So you have a think on these things and you have a practice these things. And Paul has been modeling through this letter the things that they've heard and seen and in him. Do this. When you encounter hard situations, here's how you can think about it. Here's how you can have the mind of Christ. Here's some other good examples. And he says, don't just think about these things. Practice them. Live them out and the God of peace will be with you. Mm-hmm. So the key to peace is first setting our minds on the right things, but then also practicing the things that we see modeled in yeah. Christ first and then in his disciples that are walking right. So this next section, 10 through 23, last of the chapter, or last of the book rather, lies what might be one of the most famous Bible New Testament verses next to John 3.16 possibly, and that's Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me beautiful verse but i think it's cool if we read the context uh, Mm -hmm. and take a look at that so in verse 11 paul says not that i speak from want for i have learned to be content in whatever circumstances i am i know how to get along with humble means and i also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance i have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Paul, really, in his life of preaching the gospel, it's kind of been feast or famine. At times, he is full. He has everything that he needs. He is well supplied. But then there are times that he goes hungry. And there are times that he doesn't have an abundance. But he's he's suffering need for something. And in those moments where he's suffering and doesn't have an abundance or doesn't have every little thing that he needs, he is going to find strength in Jesus Christ. This is a lesson of contentment. This passage is not a, you know, big open scale, I can just do anything I ever desire or want because Christ is the one that gives me strength. Win the football game. Right. This is a very specific verse that Paul is pouring out his heart saying, even when I have nothing, that is okay. Because any strength I get is from Christ and from the Lord. That's a beautiful point. And so may we, in the moments where we feel like we're left empty or are suffering or have a need, 
may we go to Christ to be filled up and not anything else. That's the context that Paul is talking about. And the reason why that is relevant to this church in Macedonia is because often when Paul had a need, they were the ones that filled it. Uh, this was a congregation that we talked about in 2 Corinthians 8 9 that Paul used as an example, that the Macedonians fully supplied his need when he needed something, and that we learned from the beginning of Philippians, they have been with him from the very start. They, they were financially and spiritually helping Paul in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. And he points out in verse 15 uh, that the Philippians, um, he actually calls them by name uh, one of, I believe, two times he does that. The other time is in Galatians where he says, you foolish Galatians. And I'll say a Corinthians and St. Corinthians as well. You're right. That's exactly right. So kind of three times. But he says that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And so this church was really good at supplying Paul for what he needed when he was out teaching and preaching. And so he's thankful for that. And he calls it a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God in verse 18. And so the Philippians giving and our giving is in a way a, a sacrifice. It is a fragrant aroma to God when we are good givers and genuinely want to do that. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about all this is it's kind of like chapter 1 where Paul is saying, yep, I might die, but I'm okay either way. And in chapter 4, he's saying, thank you for the financial support, but I would have been fine either way. Yep. I would have been fine without it. I would have been fine with it. It's And actually, he's grateful really more for the Philippians that they gave it than he's glad that he as Paul got it. Yeah. And he's grateful that the giving is more important than the receiving, that that benefits them to give it. So that's what he's really happy about. But that mindset of contentment is so hard to maintain, especially in our world. I mean, I'm speaking as an American here. Uh, we have so much more than we need. And it's fascinating that abundance creates, ironically, discontentment. And we have to constantly be on guard. I have to, I have to constantly be on guard to make sure that I'm not just wanting more and more and more being grateful for what I do have, willing to use that. And um, again, this is why Philippians is such a famous book. It's like, all right, how do I have peace? How do I be humble? How do I have joy? Uh, How do I be content? Man, it's like, it's boom, boom, boom. Like Mm -hmm. every chapter is so rich in how to think, how to live, uh, so applicable, so helpful. So this is one reason that Philippians is just one of the most beloved letters of Paul. Yep. Amen. So, Lord willing, next week we are going to get into the book of Ephesians. Uh, we did an entire season on that. Uh, I can't even remember what season number it is, but scroll back on your podcast and you'll find it somewhere in there. But I still think it would benefit us as we're doing this New Testament overview to just do an overview of the book. Um, and so, Lord willing, we'll dig into that next week. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. Leave us a rating or a review that will help us reach more people. If you're interested in Bible studies locally or abroad, uh, reach out to us, 717-585-0949, or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. We'd love to connect with you. For more information on group studies and worship, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.